You know, oftentimes uh, when this book that we are studying is preached, it is preached in view of a major building campaign that's coming in the life of the church. And I can see why. This book, Nehemiah, if you're a visitor with us, we are working through Ezra and Nehemiah. They're actually one book in the original. We just finished Ezra. Brad began Nehemiah for us, and this is the second week in the text. But this book, it's about building the city of God. It's about the place where God's people come together, that place where they come together to worship and to serve and to proclaim his name. Is, it's run down. It's dilapidated. It's in dire need. And God's people come together. They work. They pray. They work. They pray. They work. They pray. And amidst challenges from outside and from inside, and brick by brick, they build. So just in pastor's lingo, that'll preach, okay? Um, that will preach for a building campaign. And you know, the thing about building campaigns, many of you went through a building campaign when this building was built. The thing about building campaigns is they kind of take all the energy up in the life of the church, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. The users that have been through one, it, it kind of becomes the focus of the church. And by necessity, it is. There's, there's so much to do. There's, there's so many things to be done, so people prioritize their time around it. They clear their schedule so they can help. They prioritize their giving around it. They hold off on that extra purchase so that they can give more to the campaign. They're talking about it. Did you see it when the steeple went up, right? How cool was that? For a time, it's like other things just fade into the background because this is what we're about. We're starting a building campaign. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we're not starting a building campaign, beloved. We're in a building campaign. Our church is in the thick of a building campaign that Jesus himself started and that every Christian in every Christian church is part of. This morning, I wanna persuade you that Nehemiah's leadership in building the city of God points to Jesus who leads us to build his church. And I want you to see this morning, brothers and sisters, that there should be one overarching, ever-expanding, overwhelming priority in your life, the life of a Christian, and that's building Christ's church. So let's start by just understanding that the city of God in Nehemiah points us to the church. A little context here. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah tell one story. So in fact, they were, they were one book in the original which is actually why you see the same thing happening again and again in both books, because their author wants us to see that this is one story, so just follow me here. If you were with us back as we covered Ezra, in Ezra one and two, we had a return to the land, right? Ezra goes back to Jerusalem. Then, if we look at Nehemiah, 
What we covered last week, chapters 1 and 2, what is it? It's the same thing. It's a return to the land. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. Then in Ezra 3 through 6, if we're back in Ezra, we've got rebuilding, rebuilding the temple. Well, now if we're in Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah 3 through 7, we've got rebuilding again, rebuilding the city. Do you see how both things are happening in the book? There's a return, there's a rebuilding. In Ezra, it's the temple that's rebuilt. In Nehemiah, it's the city's walls that are rebuilt. And the question is, what does this point us to? What is the fulfillment of the temple? What is the fulfillment of the city? The fulfillment is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So believers, make no mistake, this is not pointing us to a building of a physical Jerusalem at a later time in history. This is pointing us to the building up of the church throughout all of history which comes to its fullness at the end of history. This is clearly how the authors of the New Testament see these things. And I actually just want you to see them for yourself so that you don't think I'm just being cute when I apply the city to the church. So I actually just wanna show you a couple of passages. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two? So it's in the New Testament. We went through Ephesians before Ezra and Nehemiah. So this is common ground for many of you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, the whole church, Jew and Gentile, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The temple in the Old Testament is the dwelling place of God. Everybody got that? Yeah, we know that. Here Paul says the church is the new temple. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are its foundation. And the Jews and Gentiles together are being built into this dwelling place, this temple. The temple is the church. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. This is at the end of your Bible, close to Revelation. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Peter says this. As you come to him, that's Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, Christians, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So Peter takes temple language, stones, spiritual house, he takes temple concepts, priesthood, sacrifices, and he applies them to the church. He just says very simply, we are his dwelling place, we are his priests. And perhaps my favorite is Revelation chapter 21, the very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John sees the end of all things here, and I just want you to pick up in verse one. Revelation 21, one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. John says that the new Jerusalem is not a place. The new Jerusalem is not a place, it's a people. The city of God, the new Jerusalem, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of her glory. Do you see that from these scriptures? So, so, so what is the fulfillment of the temple? The church. What is the fulfillment of the city? The church. And with that, let's just get into our text this morning. Let's understand it in context, and then by God's grace, let's make application to ourselves. So last week in Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem. He inspects her broken down walls. He rouses Israel to rise up and build. And then chapter three, verse one, is in response to this. Pick up in Nehemiah chapter three, verse one. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him the man of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired and next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and it set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, repaired Malatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Marathonite, the men of Gideon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumphah, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pehoth-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the districts of Beth-Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. I'm just gonna pause there in the midst of what feels like a Hebrew phone book. Thank you for praying for me as I attempted to pronounce those names. This chapter is structured around the various gates 
along the wall of Jerusalem. So I just want you to picture in your mind uh, a city of old, maybe a medieval city. Just have that in your mind. You know, one that's surrounded by a wall that serves as a defense from invaders and the people are inside. Uh, that's the city of Jerusalem. There's a wall around it. This wall has various gates that serve as entry and exits points. But remember, just historically, this, this wall has been in shambles for 141 years at this point. Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem back in 586. Nehemiah arrives in 445. So for 141 years, this wall is in ruins. It's in shambles. And here we go. We're rebuilding. And this chapter tells us that the rebuild actually went counterclockwise beginning at the sheep gate. That's verse one, which is the northernmost gate, and it moved westward to the fish gate, verse three. It continues on to the gate of Yeshana, verse six, and then on to the valley gate, verse 13, and the dung gate, and the fountain gate, and the water gate, and the horse gate, and the east gate, all the way back to the sheep gate in 32. Now, in between some of these gates, there are towers. There are towers for defense. You got the Tower of the Ovens, verse 12. You got the projecting tower, verse 27. Now, the reality is we don't know exactly where each of these gates are located in the city of Jerusalem. So if you've got a study Bible at home or a Bible atlas at home, most likely you have a, a, a map of this by this text and it has the names, but it's got a question mark by each one because the exact location is a little fuzzy. But what's not fuzzy, what's clear as day and what's the reason for this text being laid out as it is, is this. The narrator wants us to know that the city is rebuilt completely. This is not a partial rebuild. This is not a, well, let's just get part of it done, but then there's gaping holes. No. Rebuilding starts at the fish gate. It goes all the way around counterclockwise until we get back to the fish gate. The whole city is built. That's the first thing I want you to see. Very simple. Whole city's built. Got it. The second thing I want you to see is that the city is rebuilt by the whole community. So first of all, just notice who puts their hand to the work first. Verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. So those are the spiritual leaders of the people. They're first to get their hands dirty in the work. Praise God. And then, of course, you got all sorts of names here, right? And if you were to look at it, it's so interesting who all is represented. You have people from all over coming here. So you got men from Jericho. You got the, the Tekoites. You got the Gibeonites. You got men from Mizpah, Maranathites. So you got Georgians and Miltonians and St. Albanians and Fairfaxians and all these different people. It's not just the people living in Jerusalem. There are people from surrounding towns that are coming to build. 
And you got a guy here who is one of them who had put away his foreign wives in Ezra. So that's Melchijah, the son of Haram, verse 11. Praise God for that grace. He's not out of the game. In fact, he's in the game. You have women, the daughters of Shalom, specifically named in 12. You have all sorts of different professions. Goldsmiths build the wall. Perfumers build the wall. Everybody's like, they would be terrible. I know, but they built, I know. Merchants built the wall. What's the point? Everybody built the wall. Nehemiah and the priests led the way, but everybody participated. Men, women, people from different towns, different professions. This was not an individual affair. This was not for those who were excited about this particular ministry or service opportunity. And and those who weren't excited about this particular ministry or service opportunity declined to participate. No, this is all hands on deck. For this to get done, everybody, everybody played their part. Now, one last little thing here. This chapter is a little interesting because it actually presents the building of the wall as though the construction was already completed. So, so I don't know if you noticed it because we came out of chapter three and we haven't gotten into chapter, or we came out of chapter two last week and we're about to get into chapter four, but chapter three is actually just a wholesale break in the narrative. And the writer is saying, hey, I want you to know something. The city's gonna be rebuilt. I want you to know something. The city is gonna be rebuilt. It's gonna be successful. It's gonna be completed. And we find that out right up front. It's like an announcer at the beginning of the football game welcoming everybody and saying, you know, the Cowboys are going to win. And you're like, no, they aren't. And I'm like, yes, they are, because they're 5-1. They're going to win. We've got a bye week this week. But let's get back to the text. As I think about the New Testament, as I think about the church, the Lord sees fit to declare the same message to us up front. Up front, he tells us that the church will be triumphant before the church has even really been planted via Pentecost. She will. When Jesus promised Peter that he'd play a foundational role in building the church, he said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. When Jesus spoke those words to Peter, he hadn't even died and risen. The church of the Lord Jesus was 12 disciples and they didn't even know what the heck was going on. But he declared the end from the beginning. Same with that vision of the church victorious in Revelation 21 that we just read. At the beginning of the church's history, the apostle John gets a vision of the end of the church's history, actually the end of all history. And the church is triumphant. She is glorified. And all rebellion and all evil and all darkness and all death has been swallowed up and it's been put down. It's a vision of the end at the beginning. And it is good for us to know this. It is good for God's people to know that we are on the right side of history, if you will. 
because it doesn't feel that way in the present, does it? No. (laughs) It feels anything but that, which is where the text goes next. Throw your eyes on to chapter 4, verse 1. So this is picking back up the narrative. And what you're going to see as we work through this chapter is that the whole thing is structured around hearing, okay? We're going to let the text kind of define our units for it. The whole, the whole thing is structured around hearing. So the enemies of God hear about the progress Israel's making, and they respond negatively with threats and jeers and plots and schemes. God's people in return hear and respond and God protects them, and that process is repeated three times over. So if you're looking at your notes, you'll see where we're going here. First, the enemies hear and jeer. God's people pray and make progress. Second, the enemies hear and plot. God's people pray and protect the city. Finally, the enemies hear and are silenced, and God's people keep working and have their weapons in their hand. So let's just let each section speak for itself. First, the enemies hear and jeer. Just take a look at chapter four, verse one. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now we've heard about Sanballat before. When Nehemiah got, Nehemiah, excuse me, got to Jerusalem, 2.10 says that when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Likewise, when Nehemiah roused the people to build in chapter 2, verse 19, the verse says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant of Geshen the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? So the thoughtful reader isn't surprised to see Sanballat's opposition here. What is surprising is the length to which he and others will go in an effort to stop this build. So just read on with me in verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers, the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building if a fox goes up on it. Now just think with me. Foxes are itty-bitty. What does the fox say? I don't know. But they are itty-bitty. No heft in them whatsoever. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Basically, he's saying this is fragile. It is useless. It is pathetic. What are these guys doing? They're just intimidating Israel, or trying to at least. They're trying to intimidate them into stopping this project. They point out their relative insignificance of a people, which is true. They were relatively insignificant. They are feeble Jews, the text says. They point out the massive scope of their task. It was a massive task. They're trying to put together a wall that's been in ruins for 141 years, and they suggest that there is no way that their work is going to stand the test of time. If a fox goes up on that thing, it's going to fall apart. And did you notice, this is subtle, 
But Sanballat said these things in the presence of the army of Samaria. <laughs> so he didn't exactly say these things in a vacuum. There's an army there that can hear his words. Now that's not very encouraging. It's kind of like, uh, well, what are they going to do? Is that army going to take sides with Sanballat? If they do, we're toast. So these are real enemies. These are real threatenings. And how do God's people respond? Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Several things to notice. They don't get distracted. They don't get distracted. This background noise, this threatening talk and chest puffing from the enemies of God doesn't become the focus of God's people. Faced with threats, they don't get distracted. They get to prayer. They pray. The enemies have heard about the wall. Now God's people ask God to hear our prayer. Hear, oh, our God, for we are despised. They don't get distracted. They get to prayer. And in their prayer, they ask God to act. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Now this is what you'd call an imprecatory prayer in the Old Testament. Sometimes we read these and we get a little uncomfortable. They don't seem all that nice. And after all, the 11th commandment says, thou shalt always be nice. Actually, it doesn't. So they're asking God to judge his enemies. But isn't that appropriate? Isn't that appropriate and isn't it right to ask God to judge the wicked? These men have set themselves against the glory of God and against his desire to magnify his name through this city. And so God's people don't take it upon themselves to enact vengeance. They ask for God to act on their behalf. And in faith they keep building. They don't get distracted. They pray. They ask God to act. And they keep working. Verse 6, so we built the wall. I love that ridiculously short sentence. They just kept working. They didn't assume that opposition meant that they were do some, doing something wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. Opposition meant they were doing something right. Remember, brothers and sisters, the seed of the serpent always rages against the seed of the woman. Satan hates it when God's people are busy about God's business. And God loves it when his people just keep building. And so verse six leaves us with this encouraging word. And the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Amen. That brings us to the second section in the chapter, starting at verse 7. And now in this little section, the enemies hear, uh, well, in, in this section that we just read, rather, the enemies hear and jeer. They just seek to intimidate, really. They're kind of barking. Well, now they step things up, and they hear and plot. Verse 7. 
But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Now notice something else. This is not encouraging if you are an Israelite. It is not just Sanballat and Tobiah at this point. Uh, there are others jumping onto the bandwagon of opposition. This is becoming a popular thing now. The Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, the enemies of God's people are growing. Verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So the threats are growing. The threats have substance. The threats are real. And in the midst of it, God's people pray and take action. They pray. <laughs> I just keep noticing how many times prayer is brought up in this text. They recognize the need for God to act. They need for God to move. They need for God to strengthen and bless them. And so they pray, but they don't only pray, they also act. They don't just, to use modern language, let go and let God. They pray and they act. They do what seems best. And in this moment, it seems like what's best is to set a guard as protection day and night. But all of this is wearying. And if you've ever just been in a season of extended difficulty, you know how hard it can be to keep your heart in the game. You know what I'm talking about? It's hard to keep thinking rightly about your circumstances. It's hard to keep your thinking in line with scripture. It's hard to keep being faithful in the work God's calling you to do in the moment if it just keeps being hard. Well, God's people are beginning to feel weary and verse 10 tells us that their morale was beginning to decline. You're not the only one that feels that way. Verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So, so that was what you were hearing in and around Judah. And, and, and those who were in and around Judah heard that our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near, that is near the city of Jerusalem, at that time, the Jews, Jews who lived near came from all directions, and they said to us, you must return to us. In other words, beyond the walls of Jerusalem, Israelites were hearing the plottings of the enemy to attack Jerusalem, and they in turn send word to their loved ones in Jerusalem, and they basically say, you guys got to get out of Dodge, okay? You guys got to stop building. You guys got to stop this. Just stop because you're going to get killed. This is, this is not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go well. You need to stop and you need to come home. Come home. Come home. Stop building. And so look at what Nehemiah does, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Now follow me here for just a second. It's a, little bit, it's a little bit hard to see what's happening. 
Um, but in the parts of the wall where there's open spaces, so exposed areas, Nehemiah fills that open space with just a whole bunch of Israelites, okay? Now what that does is it creates the illusion to the enemy who's looking on that wherever there is a structural weakness, there's a whole horde of Israelites ready to defend that area. Now, as, as we go on in the text, we're gonna find out that Israel actually did not have the manpower to really defend this wall, but Nehemiah is not going to allow them to back down. And he puts them in such a place to intimidate the enemy, and he speaks to them in such a way as to bolster them. Look at verse 14. And I looked, and I rose, and I said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Oh, this is beautiful. He directs their attention to their great and awesome God. The covenant-keeping, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God, and he calls them to be courageous. Be courageous and fight. God will fight for you. That is essentially what he says. Be courageous and fight. God will fight for you. And then look at what happens next, verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, what plan? The plan to attack Jerusalem. So Nehemiah stationed everybody such that the enemies got the picture that their surprise attack wasn't a surprise attack and that Israel was willing to defend when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. The whole community. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And when the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on with the work in one hand and held his weapon in the other. So just get this. If the particular type of work allowed for a guy to work with one hand and hold a weapon in the other, he actually did that. That's crazy. And then look at verse 18. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. So if the work required two hands to do the work, the guy still had his sword at his side ready to go. That's incredible. The men who sounded the trumpet was beside me, or the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So again, they are fully ready to go, but they are also far from full strength, far from fully manned, but they are courageous of heart, aren't they? Amen. They are courageous of heart. So we labored at the work. And half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. 
So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Well, what a war mentality that is. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. My goodness. This is what the building project was like in real time. So chapter 3 says the city will be built. The church will be triumphant. Chapter 4 says the city will be opposed. The church militant. So I just have a question for you. What age are we living in? Chapter 4. Chapter 4, right? We know that the church is going to be triumphant. We know that because of Jesus' words, because of Revelation 21. We know that the church is going to be triumphant, but brothers and sisters, our role right now is to be the church militant. Our role right now is to build. So just let's think about this chapter through the lens of the New Testament for just a minute. Let's just take these things that that hopefully grabbed your attention. This is an exciting, encouraging text this morning. It kind of grabs you. Let's take these things and let's just press them down into our own hearts. And brothers and sisters, first and foremost, I just want you to be clear. We are in the midst of a pitched spiritual battle. We are. The enemies of God do not want to see the church of Christ flourish. They don't. And, and, and just like in Nehemiah's day, so too they are in our day. There's jeering. There's, there's plotting. There, there's hopes for demise. And, and how should we respond? Well, we should respond like they did. <laughs> Grateful for a prescription. When God's people heard the threatenings and the jeerings of the enemy, what did they do? They prayed. We should pray. Is that what we do? So when we hear about believers being persecuted for their faith, do we pray? When we hear about legislation that would restrict religious freedom, do we pray? When we hear about negative responses to the gospel from someone we're seeking to minister the gospel to, do we pray? Do we pray? Do we pray and ask God to act on account of his mighty name? Do we pray and ask God to move in the hearts of sinners? Do we pray and entrust judgment into his hand? Do we pray? Or do we complain? Or do we post zingers on social media? Or do we merely get together to complain about the direction of this, that, or the other thing? Do we pray or do we distract ourselves with other pursuits, with our jobs, our hobbies, our kids' athletics and activities? Do we pray? We should pray. We should pray and in our prayers we should ask God to act. We should ask God to act on behalf of his name. Did you notice that's what they did? They asked God to act. Oh, God, act on behalf of your name. Oh, God, put an end to the reviling and the rebellion of sinners who despise your name and your church. Oh, God, put an end to it. And here is the glorious thing. 
this prayer will always be answered. You may not see the answer, but it will always be answered. God's name will be magnified. God's justice will be exalted either through the cross or through the final judgment. I praise God for both. I praise God that the enemies of God have the opportunity to no longer be the enemies of God because remember, brothers and sisters, we once were the enemies of God, but his justice was executed on his son on the cross so that we don't have to be the enemies of God, but we could be the people of God. And so do we pray with a heart of mercy for people who are lost? Or do we just get frustrated at them for what they think? Oh, we should pray that God would be merciful and just in the gospel and that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And if they don't, justice will still be served. It's either served upon Christ on the cross or upon the right judgment of God in hell upon those who continue to rebel against his lordship. Justice will be served. So we should pray. And we should ask God to act. But we shouldn't only pray. We shouldn't only ask God to act. We should build. We should build the church of Jesus Christ and this is a whole community effort. The whole community is involved. The perfumers of you out there, the merchants of you out there, everybody of you out there, the whole community is involved in building the city of God. Brother, sister, you must be clear that your overarching priority in life is to help build Christ's church so the question is are you playing your part that's the question are you playing your part you know it really starts with spiritual mindedness about your own soul playing your part in building the city of God building the church of God building redeeming grace both in maturity and in number It really starts with spiritual mindedness about your own soul. We we can't build each other up. We can't can't expand if, if we're not dwelling in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves. Brothers, sisters, start building the city of God with a spiritual mindedness about your own soul. Start with spiritual mindedness about your own family. You may have enemies of the gospel within your own home. Start there. Start building there. Continue to lead out in directing your little ones to God, thereby building the church of Christ. So build, brothers and sisters, your own spiritual health and well-being through the gospel and then build in a spiritual mindedness into your family and then, brothers and sisters, invest in the church. Invest in in the church. So, like, just practically, like, the question would be, like, are you here? Right? Are you here? You know, used to, it was, it was considered that, that three times a week would be faithful involvement in church, and now it's three times a month is kind of considered faithful involvement in the church. Brothers and sisters, that's, 
We're not about guilting anybody here, but we want to see you involved in the ministry and the mission of the church and living and loving each other and building one another up through involvement in one another's lives. And so when we ask you, are you here? It's not because we're interested in an attendance checkbox so that we can say this, that, or the other thing. It's because we care about you and we want to build Christ's church. So are you here or are you distracted? And are you here two times a month or three times a month? Or are you really here? You gotta be here. And then when you're here, are you willing to serve in whatever way you're needed. One time I got an email uh, from, a, from a dear brother. I love this brother, but he, he was just announcing to me where he would serve. He said, my spiritual gifts are greeting, you know, uh, and he kind of just, he, he laid out a whole bunch of things of like what his spiritual gifts were. Can I just encourage you, be willing to serve on the wall wherever you're needed. <laughs> be willing to serve on the wall wherever you need, you're needed. Not necessarily wherever you're most passionate, but wherever you're needed. Thank you for teaching our kids and foundations. Thank you for leading games in Awana. Thank you for reaching out to one another and just asking, how are you doing in Christ? I'm praying for you. Thank you for making meals for one another. Thank you for cleaning the church. Thank you for coming early and making coffee. Thank you for faithfully, generously, and sacrificially giving. You're building you're building. Are you willing to serve wherever you're needed? So I guess, brothers and sisters, my question would be, are you viewing your life through the spiritual lens of the reality that God would call us to be given overall to the building of Christ's church? Is, is, is that clear in your mind? And are you working towards that end? In your own heart? In your family? and then in the outflow of your relationships and in your commitment to the local church. My prayer is that it would be, and I think God will be glorified, I think our church will be blessed, and I think that we will storm the gates of hell. Because Christ Jesus promised that he would bless the efforts of his church. That doesn't mean that our church is gonna you know, rocket and socket, and there you go. I mean, who knows? We just want to be faithful, but why don't we venture out in bold hopes that he would continue to use us here in northern Vermont to make an impact for his kingdom? That's what we want to see. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you use all sorts of normal people to build your church. Thank you that your church, the victory of your church is assured through the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross who bled and died and rose to conquer the enemy once and for all and then to lead us to victory in a coming day. So we thank you, Father. We praise you. And we ask that you give us grace to live in accords with these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.